All right, so we're here for another episode of the Project Idealism podcast. I tried to get back on the rag wagon last week with Ryan Evans, and today I am joined by the founder of Chirp Radio. So I feel like I'm sort of with someone famous, even though I see you every day. <laughs> so Sean, welcome. Sean, I uh, don't know if I even know your last name. Sean Campbell. I did know that, actually. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so today we're going to talk all about Chirp and nonprofits and uh, not the startup kind of nonprofit, but an intentional nonprofit. <laughs> it's true. We did make that choice. Right. So why don't we start out by you just telling us about Chirp Radio and what your vision for it was when you started it and sure. where it's at now and all that good stuff. Great. Um, Chirp Radio, at this point, is an online community radio station. It's focused on music, arts, and culture around Chicago. And um, the idea for it was I had been running another community radio station in Chicago for about eight years, and uh, that was a university community hybrid. And after that time, they decided that they no longer wanted it to be a community radio station. They wanted it to be exclusively focused on the university. So at that point, I had a great group of like 100 community volunteers who had been doing really good work, and it seemed that there was a real message that um, if you wanted to be able to do something um, in media the way you really wanted to do it in this day and age where there's so much consolidation and uh, corporate ownership and even large university ownership and nonprofits, um, the way to do it had to be to do it on your own. So in the summer of 2007, I decided that I was going to launch this new organization, the Chicago Independent Radio Project, invite all these community volunteers who I had been working with to come along with me and anybody else who was interested, and that we were going to build a brand new radio station from scratch, from the ground up, um, which was something that I had never known anybody else to have done. I mean, I knew it had been done, obviously, but I didn't know anybody personally. Right. Um, but, you know, I just felt like, well, this is what we have to do if we want to actually have a truly independent community radio station for Chicago. So what does community radio station mean? What does that mean? Basically, a community radio station is a station where there are a lot of opportunities for volunteers to get involved, and you hear the voices of actual people from the community. Um, there doesn't tend to be a lot of paid air staff. And so the people that you hear doing shows are just people who are passionate about radio, who may have a particular area of interest, and um, you know have, have gotten involved and volunteered and gone through a training program and then can do their own show. So, okay, so this sounds like a monumental task to me. Like this sounds like a lot of a lot of effort. So, not the least of which is like the licensing of the music that you play and paying royalties and all that kind of stuff. So I don't necessarily want to like jump right into the meat, but I, that's like my burning question. How do you manage that? That piece is a big pain. And, um, you know, once we actually got the station up and running, which took us a few years, you know, the first few years were raising awareness and raising money. But then in January 2010, we launched the station at chirpradio.org. Um, and at that point, we had to figure out all the royalty agreements and everything. So you've got um, the different agencies that you pay, basically composer agencies, which are BMI, CSAC, and ASCAP. 
-hmm. And then you pay, when you're a streaming station, you also pay sound exchange. So you pay for performance rights as well as composer rights. So this is um, different than a quote-unquote normal radio station, right? This Is this the thing where uh, I've heard internet streaming radios say that the royalties they have to pay are unfair compared to regular radio stations? And is that the piece that you're talking about? Right, it's a different structure. Um, all radio, terrestrial and online radio, pay composer fees to BMI, ASCAP, and CSAC. But when sound exchange was established, um, the, the whole idea was that there would be a performance fee. So the band who played the song would get paid for that. And, you know, we're not necessarily, we, we don't object to bands getting paid, but the agreement that always existed with terrestrial, terrestrial radio and uh, the labels was that there was a mutually beneficial agreement that radio played the records that gave them exposure and the labels benefited because they sold music. Right. But as the labels, you know, have seen their business model pretty much fall apart over the last decade, they've been looking for other sources of revenue. And with the advent of streaming radio and really it becoming a force, um, the labels and the um, RIAA really saw an opportunity to bring in a new stream of income. So this performance fee impacts anything online, but terrestrial radio does not pay a performance fee at this point. And when you say terrestrial radio, you mean like uh, like 103.5? Right, broadcast radio, anything okay. that you can find on the broadcast dial. Right. So when I think of internet radio, I think of like Pandora or Spotify, right? But that is not what Chirp is. No, and I always argue with people. I'm like, that's a streaming service, but it's not a radio station. Pandora is not a radio station. Last FM is not a radio station. Because I believe in the greatness of radio. And all the things that are great about radio are not things that are being done by those services. Those ha certainly have a place, but the whole idea of radio, the charm of radio, the power of radio, is the fact that it tends to be very local, it's live, it's immediate, and it's really intimate. It's something that you, you know, invite into your car, you invite it into your home, you don't listen to radio with, with a group of people. And as you listen that way, you tend to develop relationships with the people that you listen to. You kind of get a sense, with radio at its best, of who the people are that you're listening to. And ideally, you should have a sense that they're sort of like a trusted friend. We always say at Chirp, we're trying to be your friend who has the greatest record collection in the world and is always turning you on to new things and letting you know what's going on, uh, who has common interests with people who love music, who love independent culture. And so, you know, Pandora and Spotify, they'll introduce you to music that's similar to the music you already like. They won't tell you anything about it. Uh, they're never going to completely surprise you. They're never going to, like, come up with something completely out of left field and be like, you know, you wouldn't know that you liked this, but once you hear it, you, you like it. And so what, you know, what I think radio is supposed to do is be like this trusted curator that does surprise you and introduce you to new things and can, you know that has the potential to it sounds really cheesy but like has the potential to like momentarily delight you and say like wow i discovered this thing that i never would have known about i found out about this piece of information this piece of music that without this source that i have this trusted source i never would have known about that right so i'm sure is everything live Yes, we are always live. So the whole thing that Chirp does is we always have DJs live in the studio. Um, we're out of the North Center neighborhood here in Chicago. 
and anything that you hear on the air is a person who is actually playing that music in real time from our studios. Okay. So, um, you know, we're always playing a really broad mix of independent music um, from a lot of different genres, eras, styles, and that DJ is sitting there in the studio making those decisions, um, you know, as he or she goes on. And is it on 24 or 7? Right now we're on until, from 6 a.m. until midnight every okay. day of the week. Um, some days from 6 a.m. to 3 a.m. And our goal is that eventually it will be live 24 hours. And the DJs, are they working from Chirp Radio headquarters or do they just pop open a laptop wherever they happen no, to be? We, and... we are all in one place. Okay. We actually have physical studios and all the DJs are broadcasting their shows from the studio, uh, the Chirp Studios. So, let me ask you a question. Why, uh, that sounds awesome, but also limiting, right? So having everybody go to the same place. So what if you, there was a DJ out in, I don't know, LA or San Francisco that was like, man, I would love to do a guest like thing, and that was good with you guys, or is that just, that never happens because it's the Chicago Independent Radio Project and you never have like guests that do that kind of thing? We feel a really strong sense of, tied to this place. We want, we want to be a Chicago radio station. Um, we welcome anyone who wants to listen, um, you know, who wants to volunteer in certain ways, um, but we definitely identify ourselves as a Chicago radio station. And so having that sense of place uh, and even having the fact, you know, being able to say our DJs are here in Chicago, right. we feel like that's, that's part of the charm of it. So you... Uh... You believe, obviously, that there's value in the liveness of it as opposed to the streaming. Definitely. But if there's dead air from midnight to 6 a.m., have you considered, until we bring on DJs to do the live, maybe we'll just start a, you know, I don't know, a hand-picked collection of six hours worth of music and let it run all night? Or is that something you're just kind of not really interested? It's not that we're not interested, to be really honest. It goes back to that licensing issue that um, okay. we were talking about. And the reason is you have to report every song that you play, um, including the, you know, the song title, the artist, the album title, the record label, the duration of the song, the time it was played, how many people were tuning in at that time. Oh. It's really, it's incredible. How do you even do that? How it's, do you do it? It's crazy. It's incredibly onerous. And for stations that aren't very tech savvy, I have no idea how they do it. And I suspect that they don't. Okay. And they're just hoping not to get caught. We've been lucky because we have a really great volunteer tech team who have built us some tools. Also, the streaming services that you use typically can provide you with streaming logs. So basically, if you timestamp everything, you can match up your streaming logs uh, with your playlist logs and make everything match up. Okay. So, but it is, it's, it's a tremendous pain, and it's the biggest problem that small stations have. Um, it's not just the cost of the licensing because, you know, if you don't have a huge audience, the cost is pretty manageable, especially for nonprofits. Um, but it's the record keeping that's the real pain for people. And how do they know how, how do you know how many listeners you have? That's in the streaming logs. Okay. Um, you know, so that's being tracked for us to a degree. And it's true that you pay by listener, right? It's not so if you had a million people listening to Chirp all at once, you'd pay a different licensing fee than if you had 20 people listening. Right. And there are certain stepping stones. So um, especially once you reach above 
159,000 aggregate tuning hours right. per month, you pay at a higher rate. You pay a per song per listener rate. Right. There's a lower rate below that. So how do we understand something? So a normal radio station, as their listener, I don't mean to say you're abnormal when I say normal. So I should say a terrestrial radio station. A broadcast station. Okay, so a broadcast station, as their listener uh, base goes up, they would be excited about this. Sure. Right? Because then they could sell their advertisements for more dollars, and they have more listeners, and their DJs become more famous, and whatever. Right? Um, but for you, as you get more popular, basically just your expenses go up. Right? Yeah, it's a strange thing, you know, because of course we want more people to listen. Right. And you always want your audience to grow, but there is a point that you can reach where you know your success can start hurting you. Um, we're still a long way away from that. I'll readily admit that, and you know we certainly want people to tune in. And once we get to that point where it starts getting expensive, we'll still manage that. You right. Know? I, I look forward to the That's day a, when we have that problem. A good problem. Now, do you are you open about your listener numbers, or should I not pry into that? Because um, it's we don't have great numbers, you know. Um, we have about anywhere between thirty-six and 45,000 tune-ins per month. Okay. Um, that sounds like not terrible to me. I like to think it's not terrible. I um, mean, I can't tell you there's definitely many. not 40,000 people tuning in to me every month. <laughs> I can't tell you how many of those listeners are unique, how many people are coming back you know, day after day versus how yep. many people are just tuning in once or twice a month. We don't okay. have access to that. So when you started, you thought to yourself, okay, I want to build, I, I love the value of radio. Um, it fills a need that streaming radio, or I should say internet streaming music doesn't, um, like provide. So, but tell me about why you decided to make it a nonprofit as opposed to saying, you know, I want to do this and I think I can make a business out of it and, um, you know, sell ads like everybody else and generate revenue and, and whatnot. Is it, so yeah, just tell me about the decision to go, go nonprofit. There are a few different reasons. Um, first off, it was where my experience was. I've just come out of um, working in, in non-commercial radio for eight years. I understood the model really well. Um, I like the fact that community radio is almost always nonprofit. It's almost always non-commercial. So okay. um, it doesn't have to be. Obviously, you're online. You can make it whatever you want. Um, but community radio, because it so involves that, you know, it's right there in the name, the community, and you want to tap into that fundraising source. You want a station like that to be listener-supported. Yeah. Um, one of the biggest complaints about broadcast radio now, it, commercial radio, is just, again, that right in the name, the commercials, that you know, 20 minutes of every hour in drive time is commercials. And so to be able to avoid commercials is right. a real selling point. And I think when you see the stations that have been successful over the past decade, they're almost all... Um, public radio stations yep. that are, are doing the most adventurous music programming and that have seen the most growth. Right. So, you know, it was understanding the model, it was, you know, the fact that it was a community radio station, and also, once again, back to the licensing, um, the licensing requirements for commercial versus non-commercial webcasters, um, they're much more manageable if you're non-commercial. Okay. So, if you had decided, you know, I'm going to charge $10 a month, to, uh, you can be a subscriber to Chirp Radio. It's the same thing you have now, but it's basically a subscriber base. That sounds like um, it still would have introduced all those other headaches with the licensing issues and that kind of stuff. Do you think it would have had a negative impact on what you're trying to build as far as the community piece goes? As I well? do. Yeah. I do. Um, we have a sustainer program, 
So people can voluntarily give on, I mean, they can give whatever they like, but we, they can give on a monthly basis, they can give on a quarterly basis, they can give annually, and it just, there's an automatic built-in charge. So people have that option if they want to, but we would never have wanted to make a subscription service. It is there, again, licensing nightmares when you have a okay. subscription service. Um, but also you shut out people who don't have resources. And another big piece of community radio is that it's really focused on serving all audiences. And if somebody wants to be able to tune into your community radio station, money shouldn't be a barrier for them. Right, right. So are you... I mean, I keep thinking that there's a little bit of a parallel with something like an NPR, but just more focused on music as opposed to a variety of topics and not broadcast. Is that accurate or is that not even close to accurate? No, that's very, uh, very accurate. I mean, community radio and public radio um, really are our siblings. Um, you know, public radio tends to be more professionalized. It you know, tends to have big staff and big budget. Um, and there has been criticism as public radio has grown and, you know, become more um, reliant on underwriting and things that, you know, you hear a lot of Walmart spots, for instance, on public radio. And you hear, you know, big funders who are like, you know, um, ExxonMobil or, you know, big corporations. So there's concerns about that. But, um, but the fact is public radio is great and it's non-commercial and it's listener supported and community radio tries to respond to some of those criticisms that public radio gets, but it's definitely in the same ballpark. And I mean, there are great music-centered public radio stations like KCRW in Santa Monica and The Current out of Minneapolis. Um, and, you know, we definitely see those as, as um, you know, very similar stations to what we're doing. They have a lot more resources than we do. Okay. Um, they're a lot more professionalized, but I mean, they certainly have a commitment to playing um, really interesting independent music. And so everybody that is playing music on Chirp right now is, is a volunteer DJ, basically, is that right? Right. Um, I'm the only paid staff member at this point. Okay. I'm, I'm a part-time staff member, right. um, and everybody else is a volunteer. So we've got about 210 volunteers wow. right now. really? Yeah. That's really impressive. I mean, getting 210 people to do anything is like quite a feat. Anyway. Yeah. You know, to get up at, I was just talking to one of my DJs last night, and she was talking about, she's on um, from 6 to 9 a.m. She does it before she goes to work. And she's yeah. saying every day when that alarm goes off, every, you know, every morning, that alarm goes off at 4.45, and she thinks to herself, why in the world am I doing this? Why is she doing that? And, she, she loves church. Yeah, and she said once about 8 o'clock rolls around, and she's been on the air for a couple of hours, that she thinks, I love this so much. Yeah. Like, you know, so that's, you know, that's what people do. They do it because they love it. And even when it's a pain, you know, even when they're sacrificing sleep, um, you know, it, it's worth it to them. Right. So you originally had the idea, you said, back in 2007? Yeah. And then from, so we're kind of jumping all over, but that's all right. So from that moment until you were on air for the first time, you said it was a couple of years. Yeah, it was about two and a half years. And what was going on during that two and a half years? Um, we pretty much had had to build a lot of relationships. We had some good relationships in place, but we just started talking to people first off, telling them about what we wanted to do, uh, what our ideas were, what our hopes and dreams were, and you know, trying to get people to buy into the idea philosophically, to look forward to it, to you know, yep. help us get there. 
and um, to actually support it to make donations. And um, so for that first two and a half years, we were, you know, we keep saying raising awareness and raising money. Um, you know, so we were out at every street festival in the summer. Okay. We, um, you know, were, were building relationships with music venues. And um, we were also working, uh, and this is another piece that we haven't really talked about yet. We were trying to um, get legislation passed so we could apply for a low-power FM broadcast license. Ah, okay. Um, because that was always a part of what we hoped to do. That, you know, we initially, back in 2007, in fact, we weren't even contemplating starting the station as a streaming station. We thought, okay, we need to change the law so we can apply for a broadcast license. We'll get a broadcast license somewhere down the line, and then we'll build a station, and then, of course, we'll stream when we have the station, but the broadcast will be the primary thing. And it kind of shows you how much things have changed, even, right. you know, just from 2007 to now. Yeah. Um, and it was only a matter of about six or eight months before we changed our minds, you know, we because we had so much support and so much enthusiasm and more and more volunteers kept coming to us. And we thought, like, well, why why should we wait? Because obviously trying to change a law at the federal level, it, it, it could take years. It could never happen. And so we decided about, I think in March or April of 2008, that we would just take the station off as a streaming station and, and that if that was all we ever did, that that could be successful, and if we were able to add a broadcast license at some point, that would be great. And so now you're 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 not planning on doing that anymore. Oh, we we, you are. we just did. You did. We just applied for a broadcast okay. license last week. Did I miss this when you just said that? <laughs> no, I didn't say. You didn't. Okay. <laughs> um, because um, what happened was we we put a lot of time and effort into it. And for those first two years, one of the things that we were doing is we were always collecting letters wherever we were that were letters to, you know, Senator Durbin and then Senator Barack Obama right. to, uh, you know, encourage them to support this bill, which was called the Local Community Radio Act, that would expand community radio stations into big cities because the local community or the, the low power FM when it was created in 2000, low-power FM stations are non-commercial, 100-watt signals. And what does the low-power mean? It's just the, the reach is a lot lower than a, than, than high-power? So yeah. A couple-mile radius or what? Their station's licensed at 100 watts. So basically, the reach is three to five miles. Got you. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So the FCC had created this low-power FM service in 2000, but the way they wrote the rules, there were no stations available in any of the top 50 markets because they put so much protection in for existing stations. Okay. And so the Local Community Radio Act was to take away some of that protection to say 100, a 100-watt station two clicks away from a 50,000-watt station isn't going to interfere with it. Okay. Um, okay. And so the bill passed finally in 2010 and was signed into law. And the FCC just um, wrote its rules. They spent about two years writing rules. Right. And... Because really, what good is a rule if you have not spent two years writing that? Right, they had to make them really good. Right. Um, and so they opened an application window just this year, and it was two weeks long. It was um, in the middle of October, um, and it just closed, and they are just now releasing the, uh, the applicants. Um, and so they'll go through a process of evaluating applications, and you know, we still are really hopeful that we'll get a broadcast license, too. Well, we better not say anything... Uh, more bad about the people writing those rules. No, they're great. The FCC is great. <laughs> we, we were so happy that there was a window because, you know, there hadn't been one for 13 years.
So what's your overall, like, uh, I guess, view of, of radio in general? Do you think it is? Because I think of radio and I'm, I'm just like, oh, it's dying, right? Yeah, it's interesting because, I mean, radio, it's, it's fascinating. I love radio. And obviously, it's still hugely, hugely valuable because you still see individual stations, full power stations in markets like Chicago being sold for like $100 million. It's crazy. Right. You know, the possibility of any independent outlet getting a full power station in a city is almost impossible. My hope with it is that over time, that there is this thought on the part of corporations that like the radio is dying and that they start divesting themselves of some of their radio properties. And while it probably will never go back to like the little mom and pop owners, I'm hoping that maybe it goes back to at least the smaller regional owners. Um, because I do think, I always say, people didn't leave radio, radio left people. And all the things that radio has done wrong over the past 20 years, it's, it's terrible. Like I said, I mean, the, the fact that, um, you know, 20 minutes of commercials in, over the course of an hour, um, just incredible repetition with the music that's being played. And a, probably most importantly, like this real loss of localism, the fact that a lot of radio stations have cut down to the bone so they don't have local air staff or they have two local people who are on the air and they're pre-recording all their breaks and they're never live on the air. So they never say anything specific. They'll never you know, tell you what the weather is right now. They'll okay. never talk about something that just happened moments ago because they voice tracked their show and recorded it you know, last night. And so all these great strengths that radio has had that I talked about, the fact that it is local and it's live and it's immediate, like radio has thrown all those things away, all these great strengths that it has. And what we see is that there's still a real hunger for it because when people find us and they kind of hear about what we're doing, um, you know, we, we have people tell us all the time, like, oh, you know, I'd totally given up on radio until I found you guys. Mm. Or, you know, you, you remind me of all the things that I liked about radio when I was a kid. Um, yeah. yeah, I feel like there's something about radio that you remember as a child that I don't that I just never experienced. Because when I think of radio, I think of um, like you're saying, just a ton of commercials, uh, relatively obnoxious DJs, and a little bit of music that was like the popular music of the day, right? So maybe I was just listening to the wrong radio stations. But when you talk about mom and pop, like I didn't even know. I mean, I guess I I would know this if I had thought about it hard, but I guess I had even forgotten there were mom and pop radio stations or that they started little. Like, to me, I think of radio as, like, these giant companies that have big radio stations. Yeah, and the interesting thing was, um, you know, that that wasn't necessarily the case until 1996. And that was when the industry... Just in 1996? Yeah. Um, that was the last wave of ownership deregulation. Um, Bill Clinton signed it into law. And what happened was... You used to be limited in big cities. You could own first. You could own one radio station. Then you could own one AM and one FM, and then they increased it to four. And you know, so there were still there were companies that owned four stations, and those were pretty big companies. But they they tended to be, if not local, at least regional. You know, there were regional groups that would own four stations in a market, and there were you know some that were trying to build nationwide groups, but. Um, there were some limits in place on how much you could do that and how many stations you could own nationally. And what happened in 1996 was they doubled the number of stations you could own in a major market from four to eight. Okay. 
And they so were, one company can own eight radio stations in the city of Chicago? Yes. And they removed the nationwide cap entirely. So from 1996 to about 2003, more than 80% of all stations in the country changed ownership. Wow. And that wasn't like one small independent group selling to another. That was almost entirely independently owned and regional groups selling to Cumulus, to Clear Channel, and to uh, CBS. So in a city like Chicago, how many companies, not radio stations, so I know we've got, you know, there's whatever, a number of radio stations, but is it only a handful of companies that, yeah. that own all of them? Yeah, I mean, there are really four, five major players in Chicago right now. Um, you know, a couple that are right near, I, I don't know, I'm trying to think if uh, Clear Channel has eight right now or if they have seven, but they're really close. CBS has a bunch. Um, Cumulus has a couple. Okay. And then we have the Tribune Company that has WGN. Right, right. Yeah. So, and, and the sad thing is, that's actually good. Like, the fact that Chicago has four or five companies um, is was way better than some other big cities that might only have two companies. Okay. So we're a diverse radio market. With four. I'm being very sarcastic. Right. right, right. Yeah. And so your hope is that over time, because of the disruption caused by things like streaming, uh, streaming internet, like or streaming music, I should say, like Pandora and Spotify, whatever, that the that they'll start breaking up again because it won't be they just won't be able to support the infrastructure of having the large radio stations or what. Right. I think that the the corporations have. Kind of cut as far as they can cut and they are seeing that their big properties aren't as profitable as they were they're still profitable but they're not making money hand over foot i mean in its heyday clear channel was saying you know it wanted to see 20 percent increases every year right um and they're not doing that anymore and so you know the hope is that if they do that they you know will over time be like well this isn't the cash cow that we thought it was and start selling off some of those properties and you know bringing the value down somewhat so you know you can buy a station for, I don't know, $27 million instead of $100 million. <laughs> right. Wow, well, Chirp has a lot of fundraising to do that. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> so, uh, if you think about, like, so it took you about two, two and a half years to raise the funds and get the community together to start the station. So that takes us to around late 2009? Uh, January right? 2010 okay. was the launch. And then, uh, so now it's three and a half years later, almost four years later. Um, where do you see Chirp going? Well, I mean, obviously, one thing that we're doing is we're waiting to hear what is going to happen with the broadcast signal. Um, the fact is, there's still an issue of kind of legitimacy of having a broadcast license. And okay. even for people who never listen, they don't have a car, they you know only listen at work, they're, you know only listening on their computer, the fact is there's, they still feel like there's some sense of legitimacy. Like when they ask you, like, oh, what number are you on the dial? And you're like, oh, we're online. And you can watch their face just lose interest sometimes. Really? And I'm like, you are 25 years old. You have never listened to broadcast radio. What's this about? Uh -huh. um, but you see that happen on a pretty regular basis. So we feel like, you know, if we get a broadcast license, it definitely it, it adds legitimacy to the operation. Um, and listening in cars still is a powerful thing. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, there are ways you can listen in your car now, obviously, but it's not as simple as just being able to hit one preset. Yeah. And so... The car is the only place I listen to the radio. And that's what we hear from a lot of people. So the car, you know, kind of the final frontier for us. Um, 
and so that helps. Um, we we rebuilt our website last year, and we we added a lot of more interactive features. Um, some things people had asked about about being able to favorite songs and. Um, do some other things, but uh, our apps aren't as interactive, so we definitely are, we're doing a wholesale um, revisioning and, and, and rethinking our apps uh, to make that experience a lot more robust and a lot more interactive because we know that that's how people are listening, and it's a, a huge growth opportunity for us right now. So you're, I mean, across Chirp, you're basically managing like web app development, uh, mobile app development, getting licenses to get. Um, Broadcast radio managing, um, like all like what you're playing and the royalties that you have to pay people. It sounds like an insane amount of work. It's a big job, and I mean, we also you know we we have partnerships, so we we have worked with like a hundred different nonprofit organizations over the course of this year. Right. Um, you know, we work with venues. We we do a ton of ticket giveaways. We present shows. We put on two big record fairs every year. We do events. Um, there are a hundred DJs who need to be scheduled and everything. So yeah, there are a lot of moving parts. And do you guys have software that you built in just for your internal tools? Yes. That to help you manage all that, that yeah, stuff. We do. Um, you know, and again, we we have this great tech team that have uh, has built so many tools for us to use, and um, everything is open source. So the idea is that we you know make that available to other community radio stations that have an interest in using the tools that we we built. Yeah. So do you ever think to yourself, like, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? This is so hard, and I've been doing it for eight years, and, like, I, has it been harder than you thought it would be when you first kicked it off, or has it been about as difficult, or you don't think it's hard at all, you're just like, I love this. This is, there's nothing, like, I'm... I, all of those things. Um, sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's not. I mean, I think the hardest thing in getting started was finding a location. That finding space that worked for us was, was the biggest challenge okay. of all the things that we had to do because we had so many people who were willing to do these other things um, that I think would have been stumbling blocks for a lot of other organizations. Um, you know, we, every, because we're such a big group, every time we put out a call for something, we're amazed that somebody in our group has that skill. Uh, we had an air conditioning issue. Well, the issue was we had no air conditioning. And we were trying to figure out solutions, and we bought these different types of units and things. And at one point, we were like, well, let's just ask the staff. Like, does anybody have any HVAC experience? And this guy was like, yeah, that's what I do for a living. And we had no idea. <coughs> and so, you know, he came in and set up our, our air conditioning units, and it's a million times better than it was. And so I think the thing is, it's such a great group of people. Um, you know, I think everybody probably says that about their volunteers. Um, but it really is amazing the like the level of commitment that people have. I mean, people who've been there from the beginning, who put in you know just hundreds and hundreds of hours. And um, you know, then we get every new volunteer meeting, we get like fifty new people who come in and want to join who've heard about the station. There's got to be something that you're doing. There's got to be like specific things that you're doing to create that like hunger to help. I think it's just the fact that I really am a true believer in radio and it's what I always wanted to do from the time I was like 10 years old. I think, you know, the only thing I ever wanted to do other than work in radio was be a ballerina. You know? <laughs> okay. Like when I was running around in my little tutu when I was six, but like after that, I wanted to work in radio. 
And there's just been always something about it that I just find absolutely great. Like, I love radio so much. And I think every time we have a new volunteer meeting and, you know, I get to talk to that group of new volunteers and I talk about, like, the, 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 the greatness of radio and the strengths and, like, how many people are wasting it and how we see this as an opportunity to really take advantage. Like, we're very old school. Like, all those traditional strengths of radio, those didn't go away. People just stopped remembering that they were valuable. But as soon as you, you start putting those things in place, you get such a great response from people. So I think the fact that, you know, I and a lot of the, the other people who come in, you know, really are radio true believers. We're not just doing it because, like, you know, we think, like, oh, this is, like, the next cool thing or, right. you know, right. it's, it's, it's something that a lot of people, like, they, there are a lot of people who grew up with radio. They were passionate about it. A lot of people who did college radio and loved it, and then they graduated and they thought, well, that was the end of that phase of my life. I'm never going to get to do that again. And then when they find that there's a chance to do it, it's really exciting to them. Yeah. Um, but just also the fact that I think, you know, there's still, there's still a hunger out there for, I think as things get like more and more kind of faceless and more and more placeless, like you can access everything all the time online, but you don't have that sense of place so much. Um, I think there is like a need for that. And I think people enjoy it and people want to connect with something. I will say, you know, your, your iPod will never make you feel slightly less alone in the world. You know, Speak but, for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> there's just something about knowing that there's a person on the other end. Yeah. Even if you never interact with them, even if you never make a request or ask a question or win tickets, just knowing like if it's, you know, if it's 11 o'clock at night and you're sitting at home and you're listening to somebody talk and just knowing that they're really doing that in real time as you're listening it's a connection, and I think it's meaningful to people. Do you ever have a, a worry that, so, you know, we're, we're in the software business, and sometimes we see people, like, they make something, and they think it's going to be a big hit, and then they just realize the market didn't want it, and they have to tweak it, whatever. Do you ever worry that, oh, no, maybe people actually have left radio, and I'm trying to make this, like, radio station, and people, like, don't want it? No, I think I see evidence to the contrary every day. Okay. You know, we've definitely seen, um, from the start, like a huge amount of community support. And people were so excited about it. And we had these launch parties, you know, at the beginning when we kicked off the station in 2010. And like, the level of enthusiasm and excitement was really huge. And, I mean, those people have continued to support the station. It's really fascinating when we see, um, like, where people are listening or during fundraising drives, who's giving and where they're coming from that it's definitely not just Chicago. Right, sure. Um, you know, it really is across the country and in some cases around the world. I think last time I checked, um, you know, over the past uh, months, people in 69 different countries have listened at some point. And so, you know, you all, of course you always worry that at some point people will no longer want what you're doing, but we don't see any sign of this right now. It's interesting, though, because you're... Uh, it seems like you're, you're creating... Like a radio station that harkens back to half a century ago in terms of creating the community and you know, providing that the, the real-time live DJ, but you're still leveraging the power of the internet to reach like a worldwide audience. Absolutely. Best of both worlds. That's cool. So when do you find out if you get the FM license? 
Well, you know, it's always a slow process. So. With the government? No. I can't imagine. Yeah, they're talking about issuing the first round of construction permits in 2015. Um, <laughs> so they'll take, I mean, there were, there were 2,800 applicants in this window. Okay. Um, they just announced that yesterday. So they're going to have to go through 2,800 applications. The first thing that they'll do is they'll go through all of the applications that don't have competitors. So those will most likely be in rural areas and exurban areas. And then the cities will come last because those, there's going to be more competition in the cities. So um, we'll be able to look at the applications and see who the competition is. And um, then the FCC will evaluate everything. And probably 2015 is my guess. Cool. Well, if you want to listen to the Chicago Independent Radio Project, it's chirp.org. Chirpradio.org. Chirpradio.org. All right. So chirpradio.org. And you are a DJ once a week on Saturdays? I'm on Saturdays from noon to two. Okay. Awesome. So you can hear a lot more of Sean if you would like from noon to two on Saturdays. Right. You can follow us on Twitter at Chirp Radio, Facebook Chirp Radio as well. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Oh, thank you. All right.